0: Well, we get to 1 Samuel this morning as we are continuing uh, into kind of merging into our series in the life of David. I want, I'm preaching three, we'll call it preface sermons as we get ready to look at the life of David. Last week we looked at Hannah, what was essentially a prologue to the whole book of Fr- Samuel. Samuel, First and Second Samuel, is one book in two parts. It has one theme to it, and so it provides us the context I'm looking to do in the next couple weeks. And so this morning we're going to look at the, the call for the demand for a king, and then next week we'll look at Saul's rejection as king as a leading up and giving us context to the life of David in the first 15 chapters of 1 Samuel. But this morning we come to 1 Samuel chapter 8, so read along in your own Bibles as I read out loud. you want your Bibles this morning as we're going to be all over the place, particularly early on. 1 Samuel chapter 8, I'll read the whole chapter. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and his the name of his second was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes, and they perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons Do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all they say, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then obey their voice. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go, every man, to his city. This ends the reading of God's holy and errant and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God. May it stand forever. Well, as a way of introduction, uh, the way we're going to walk through this text is uh, kind of very methodically looking at headings of various sections. And the first section I want to look at is verses 1 through 3, where we see in particular that with this news about Samuel's sons... Uh, not walking in his ways, but turning aside to bribes and perverted justice. And what I want you to see here is a familiar problem. This should sound familiar to you if you know your Old Testament, but for many of us, we don't. And so as a means of not only introducing this sermon, but in giving, us, giving us more of an a, a introduction to all of Samuel, I want to go all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible, and so turn to your table of contents this morning, and we're going to do some review as we're gonna um, use these verses to give us a sense of the theme of Samuel and even what we need to understand as a theme in this text in First Samuel chapter eight. So we look all the way back. The theme of First Samuel and the theme of this text is that we need a king. We need a king. We see this all the way back in Genesis 1 and 2 to give you the context of 1 and 2 Samuel. See, in Genesis 1 and 2, we have creation where God makes all of creation. He is the ruler and the Lord over all things. And he makes man and woman in his image and he calls them very good. And he makes a covenant with them, has a relationship with them in which he says, You will obey me and follow me and extend my garden to the ends of the earth. And yet what we see in chapter 3 is after everything is so wonderful that Adam and Eve fail to obey. Satan tempts. And Adam falls and judgment occurs. And yet, when God comes and gives his judgment statement to Adam and Eve, we see in there a promise within the curse. That there will be one. There will be one who will come from the woman, and he will crush the head of the serpent. There will be a savior to come. There in the midst of the curse, there is the gospel given, that there is a victory coming through a baby's birth. Perhaps he will be a king who will rule the world. Then Genesis 4 through 11, while we would expect, maybe rapidly, you think maybe this king will come, and this one from the woman will come to save the world. But in Genesis 4 through 11, things go from bad to worse, as things get really awful. And there is appears to be no hope of this promised one fulfilled and that's when then God calls and comes enters the scene with Abraham. And we see Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 where God shows up and finds this Abraham guy and he gives him promises. And one of the things he promises to him, and particularly in Genesis chapter 12, is he says, from you, Abraham, will come an offspring that will ultimately become a great nation, a nation with land and with a ruler, and they will be blessed. This nation will be blessed by the Lord. And not only that, but they will be a blessing to the nations. Now, this is important. If you want to understand Israelite history, Israel is supposed to be a nation that is pure and holy before the Lord. And that in, because of the way the Lord blesses them, all the nations of the earth are to want to come and join Israel and worship their God. The high point of the Israelite kingdom is when the queen of Sheba, people are coming to hear the wisdom of Solomon and to see the greatness of Israel as they worship God in the temple. But what we see in the rest of Genesis is we don't see the promised one who appears to be coming. Instead, we have this family of Abraham, and he is, oddly enough, does not appear to be some great family. His family appears to be far more like your and my family, rather dysfunctional. We get four more generations of the Abrahamic family where there's lots of and ups and downs. But Genesis ends in chapter 49 of Genesis, in which there's a promise given through the mouth of Joseph... Or the mouth of Jacob, I believe, to his sons, in which he is communicating to Judah that he is going to be, from his line, is going to be a ruler. In other words, he's saying, from you, there's going to be a king who will rule all the earth. That's the promise. The king is coming, we see in the end of Genesis. And so we we move out of Genesis and we move into Exodus. 400 years has gone by. And where do we find Israel? Do they have a good king? Absolutely not. They're in a place of oppression and enslavement. And the king over them is one known as Pharaoh. They are not a blessed people. They are an enslaved people. And yet God works through Moses to set them free. And they come out of Egypt. They cross the Red Sea through God's provision. and They enter into the desert. And what they're supposed to be is a quick trek to the promise land to become that glorious nation that worships God. Instead, because of their sin and their lack of faith, they wander in the desert for 40 years until one generation dies out. And it's there in the desert that God gives them Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, right? The books where your Bible reading plan goes to die. And what we find in the the book of Deuteronomy is written by Moses right before the people of Israel are about to enter into the promised land. And he's communicating to them what they need to do as he passes authority over to Joshua. Now, this is important for understanding 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings because these history books are what's known as Deuteronomistic history. In other words, if you're going to rightly understand it, then you have to understand the law because what we're going to see is constantly it's a comparison of is Israel living into the blessedness of a people who live under the law of God and who gives laws? The king does. And what we see in Joshua now, there's some good news, and things appear to be going well, right? Joshua's the great, strong, and courageous leader who leads the people of Israel across the Jordan into the Canaan land, and they're drudging these evil nations and rooting them out, and they're taking over the land of Canaan. At the end of Joshua, it appears that all God's promises are coming true, except there's just a few nations that are hanging on. These thorns in the side of Israel, they have yet to root out of Canaan. And so at the end of Joshua, there is this sense of everything, this is great, things are going really well for Israel, and yet we now, now that Joshua is dead, we need a new leader, someone who will finish the job. But instead of getting a new leader, we get the next book, which is Judges. Now, if you've ever read Judges... And I would suggest that you never read it for bedtime stories. Because Judges, it begins badly and it ends even more badly. And what we find there is generation after generation after Joshua's death is that Israel, it says, forgets God. And not only do they forget God, but they run after the gods of other nations. And God judges them. And he allows other nations, such as the Philistines and other groups, to come in and rule over them and oppress them. And the pattern will be that when they're oppressed, that they'll cry out to God once again and God will raise up a judge and he'll lead them to some sort of battle and victory and they'll repent of their sins and things will be good for a while and then the cycle will go again. They'll worship other gods, they'll be oppressed, judges raised up. But the judges were almost never godly guys, were they? I mean, you read about judges and you go, this is the best we can do? I mean, Samson's a playboy, and he's the, he's the righteous one He's supposed to lead God's people. These are the kind of guys that were there. And so there's this downward spiral in the book of Judges. And Judges ends this way with these ominous words in chapter 21, verse 25. And in those days, there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's what's going on with Israel. Israel needs a king Chronologically, Judges ends, and 1 Samuel generally picks up historically right around this place where Judges drops off. But you have to understand that there's some good news in the midst of Judges. You see, right around smack dab and historically, around this, the middle part of when the Judges have been ruling, there is the story of a woman named Ruth. And even Ruth, though, in all of its good news and its happiness and its hope, is pointing to the fact that we need a king. You see, at the end of Ruth, there's a genealogy you know, genealogy is one of those parts of the, your Bible reading where you go, I have no idea why these names are here, but they're actually usually very, very important. Perhaps you're thinking to yourself, it's not a sin to read the genealogy, right? I'll just kind of skip over this part. Well, here's the importance of the genealogy, because the genealogy at the end of Ruth says shows this, that the Boaz, the one who marries Ruth, has a son named Obed, and Obed has a son named Jesse, who ends up having a son named David. And so if you're an Israelite reading Ruth, and then after you've read Judges, you're hearing this, There's hope because there's a king coming. Things are really bad. Everyone's doing what is right in their own eyes, but there is a king coming. And that's where we pick up in First and Second Samuel. And as we saw last week, it begins with a barren woman. It's a, essentially a parable, a prologue to the whole book of Samuel, revealing the, the spiritual life of Israel. The air, Israel is barren in those days. Israel is hopeless. Israel is oppressed during the days of Hannah. They're ruled by the Philistines. And what's worse is they're also led by theological morons and spiritual idiots. Eli has two bad eggs for his sons. And they steal the sacrifices from God's people and from God himself. And Eli doesn't do anything about it. These are supposed to be the spiritually elite ones. We need a king. That's what the first couple chapters of 1 Samuel say. And then in 1 Samuel chapter 4, it goes from bad to worse as they treat as Hophni and Phinehas lead the people of Israel in battle against the Philistines. And they decide to use God as a good luck charm. And so they take the ark out, and yet the ark in the battle is, is stolen by the Philistines, and it is taken. And what we see there is that when Eli hears that the ark has been captured, and that in that battle his sons die, Eli falls over and dies and one of the wives of Hophni and Phineas, when she hears the news, she goes news. She goes into labor and she has a baby, and she names him Ichabod, and she, which means the glory of God has departed. Israel needs a king. The only bright spots in these chapters: this guy Samuel. In chapter six, he's appointed as judge and he is godly and is faithful and it appears to be this repeat of the book of Judges going on. He leads Israel to repentance and then a victory in chapter seven over the Philistines and the ark returns. So there's some good news. But then in chapter eight, which is where we picked up, verses one through three, what do we see in verse three? Uh Uh-oh, the same pattern is playing itself out in Israel. Are Samuel's sons gonna be able to lead Israel? No, they are greedy They are unjust. They are seeking unrighteous gain. So it's a familiar problem. We need a righteous king. So what is Israel's solution? We'll pick up in verse 4 now. What is Israel's solution to the fact that they need a king? Look at verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together, and they came to Samuel at Ramon. They said to him, Behold, you are old. Which is just a great way to start a, right? uh, Hey, old guy. Get out, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But this thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all they say, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. What I want you to see, and this is heading number two this morning, is they have a problem, but their solution doesn't help things. In fact, because they have a godless solution. Heading two is a godless solution. Now, real quick, they, they demand a king from Samuel and from God. They said, we want a king to rule over us so that we can be like all the other nations. Now, first, you have to understand this, though. We've we, we, we got to be careful because it's actually not wrong to have a king. Right, We read all those passages earlier about God saying you're going to have a king. Right? Genesis chapter 17, God promises to Abraham that a king will shall come from you. In Genesis 35, God promises to Jacob that a king shall come from your offspring. In Genesis 49, God promises the line of Judah will be a lion ruler. He's going to be king over all the peoples. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 20, God actually establishes the rules around which a king could be established over Israel. And here are the rules. Because they're coming to play later on. Here's the rules in in Deuteronomy chapter 17. The king must be a man of God's own choosing. That means the people don't get to choose, God gets to choose. And what we're going to see in verse 20 is that they are the ones who choose their king. He also says that this king must be among you. He must be an Israelite. He must not acquire horses and wives and riches. He must not be a king who gathers for himself. In other words, he's not just going to see the kingship as something for his own personal gain. We also see that he must write out in Deuteronomy 17 the whole law. In other words, the king has to have his own copy of the law. In fact, he had to memorize it because he has to rule with righteousness and justice. He is putting into place his own laws. No, God's laws. And then it says he must not lift his heart up above his brothers. In other words, as a king, he must see himself as humble and as a servant of the people, not as one who... Has sees the people as being his servants. And so there should be, there could be a king in Israel. This is not wrong. And yet why does God say this is wrong? God says in this act they have rejected him. In other words, you have to understand this, that the fact of asking for a king is not wrong, but the motivation of asking for a king is what's wrong. That there are many things in life that you may ask God for that are not sin and are inherently wrong in and of themselves, but there are some things that your motivation is flawed, and that is the problem. And we see a couple of motivations that they articulate out of their own mouths as to why they want a king. They say, we want a king to judge us, to rule over us, to bring justice into our land. Second, they say in verse 20, we want a king to rule us and lead us out into battles. That's their biggest thing that they need. Someone who will throw off oppression and make us into a great nation. And the third thing is we want a king because we want to be like all the other nations. Well, I think there's two particular critical issues in the motivation here that we see within those reasons. Two particular things that God sees and says, that's rejection of me. You see, their solution of having a king is a rejection, first and foremost, of God's leadership over them. And God's provision for them. They say, we want a king who will lead us out to great victories. Now, you've got to be scratching your head if you know anything about Israelite history. Because you look at Israelite history, and who is the one who has given them victory? It's God's. And Samuel brings this through to their attention. In fact, in First Samuel itself, in chapter 5, Israel, all of their attempts, they bring the ark out. They're bringing their good luck charm. Everything is going great. They think we're going to win because we have the ark on our side. And they stink, and they, the ark is stolen from them by the Philistines, and they lose the battle, and many thousands of men in Israel die. They do a really bad job. So God and his ark is taken into captivity in the, Philist- in the Philistine and they go and they put the ark before the god Dagon, who is a Philistine god. And yet they have this problem because every morning, what happens? In 1 Samuel chapter 5, we find that Dagon is lying face flat on his face every morning, bowing before the ark. And every night they'll prop him back up, and in the morning they find he's fallen back on his face. And everyone who tries to touch the ark gets cancerous tumors on their bodies. And so they finally decide, you know, we've got to get rid of this god. We can't seem to defeat him. He seems to be more powerful than I, our God, and so they send him out. God doesn't need Israel to lift a finger for him to be victorious over the Philistines. And then we see in First Samuel chapter 7 that when they're beginning to do battle against the Philistines, Samuel leads the people in repentance and in crying out to God for his help. And it says in 1 Samuel chapter 7 that God is the one who gives them the victory. This is part of their history. In Deuteronomy 30, 31, Moses says in giving the people instructions that as they cross the promised land, who leads them? He says, God is the one who leads you. God is the one who's going to give you the victory. And what we're going to see later on in 1 Samuel chapter 12, in the most unmotivating, anointing speech as he places Saul upon the throne over Israel, uh, Samuel chastises Israel by using their history and saying, pointing to many battles that God had won for them, and saying, and yet you've rejected the God who's won victories for you. So in your past, what you have done when you've needed something, when you've needed victory, you've cried out to God. But in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the big problem here is instead of crying out to God for help and for victory, they demand a king. They want an earthly solution when they have God himself. In other words, what I want you to see is their help now is not in the strong name of Yahweh. They're not looking to God to win their victory, but they're looking to a new form of government for their victory. Now listen, don't we love doing this? Finding our earthly solutions for victory. Having a passion. We we seem to have a passion for substituting God and putting great men in. And yet what do we find? Even in the Christian world, our best pastors, our mega church pastors, our greatest political leaders in the Christian world, what do we find time and time again they do? They fail us. Listen, right, you can see the application here rather clearly, right? That brothers and sisters in in the church in America, if you want to see something change in this country, you are not going to do it through the polls primarily, you're going to do it through prayer primarily. That you're not going to do it through practical or political solutions, but prayerful solutions. You're not going to do it through pragmatic principles, but entrusting the king who is over all things. This is why David, this is actually a theme that comes up over and over and over again. David understands our proclivity as one who is king for people to look to him and trust him. And he's saying, that's no good. David knows how weak he is. And so in Psalm 118, verses 8 9, he says this, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than the trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than the trust in princes. 146, he repeats this, Put not your trust in princes and a son of man in whom there is no salvation. I think of the old pastor in my um, uh, regional pastor's meetings I used to go to when I lived in Mississippi. And there was an old pastor, or the, the, the other pastor would be griping about the, the state of the culture and the terrible things that are going on. And he would get up and he would simply say this, Brothers, what we need to do and desperately need to do is to pray for revival. Not for our particular, listen, it's wonderful if we have good men in office, but ultimately the best answer that we need is for King Jesus to come to bear and revive his church. You see, where the culture gets changed is it always begins when God's church begins to pray again. And when God's people become alive, and when they begin to actually trust the king, and it's when that happens that the church moves outside of its walls and actually begins to affect its culture. That's what we desperately need here. That we would not trust in men, but we trust in God. Well, that's the first part of the rejection. They reject God's leadership. But the second thing I want you to see is they reject is they reject God's call upon their life. They reject God's call upon their life. What do they say? Why do they want to have a king? Because they want to be like everybody else. It's this is so us, isn't it? We're such a Amer- we're so confused as Americans. Right? All our commercials all, like every clothing company in America talks about being unique. And yet you're like, you're a billion-dollar corporation that everybody wears your clothes. How is that uniqueness? Israel, won, they, want, they, 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 they were supposed to be unique by definition. They were supposed to be different, and yet they want to be like everybody else. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, God goes out of his way to communicate to his people how unique they are, how he is their, he is their, they are the special chosen people of God, not because of how great they are, but because of how great and unique their God is. In fact, the uniqueness of Israel, what set them apart was the uniqueness and the holiness of their God. Uh, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2, God says this this through, through Moses. He says, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. God says, Israel, I've called you to be different, to be holy, to be separate, to be different from the nations around you. And they are rejecting that call of God. They say, we want to be around just like everybody else around us. They're preferring that, the lifestyle of the world, instead of the lifestyle that God has given for them. They prefer to blend in instead of being different. And what do you call that? Let's return to an old Christian word. It's called worldliness when you want that. And when you want to look like the world, and talk like the world, and smell like the world, and live like the world, that's what it is. And this is what the challenge is, Nicole is, to Israel. They are rejecting God because they want to smell like everybody else. They want to look like everybody else. They want to live like everybody else. This is ultimately nothing less than a rejection of God himself, and of God's ways, and of God's future, and God's vision for them. So my question for you to try to begin to draw this down into your life a little bit is this. What is your substitute king? Who is your substitute king? What are you looking to? Let me give you some some direction thoughts here. Remember, the three statements that they make about why they want their own king is they want someone to judge them. They want somebody who will lead them out in battle. And they want to be like the nations around them. What What you see here is a judge in the Old Testament had the role of seeking justice. And bringing consultation and guidance into your life. Who do you look for before God to guide you? Who do you look for before God to guide you? Who are you looking for to bring justice into this world, ultimately? And then in verse 20, they say, we want a God who's going to bring us out into battle. And lead us and win us the victory. Here we see that they want a king who's going to be one who's going to win the battle for them. Who's going to be their defender. Who's going to give them power. What are you looking for to, to give you defense, to make you secure, to give you power in this world? Is it your manhood, your masculinity, your social status, your finances? These things that we look to that can be kings. And then lastly, they say, we want a king, substitute kings so that we can be like everybody else. Because having a king in those days is what shaped your identity as a person. They were far more corporately connected than they had to be in order to survive. And who your king was, you took on that characteristic as, an, as a nation, as a person. I am an Israelite was your identity more than anything else. And so here's the question for you. There are kings in your life that would say, I'm your identity. What's your identity in? And if it's something other than Jesus and the cross of Christ Jesus, then that thing is a king and it's a false god. What are you looking forward to as your king besides Jesus? Think about that as we go into heading three. Pick it up in verse 10 through 18. God tells Samuel, listen, I'm going to give him a king, but I want you to warn him first how this is going to go. And I'm not going to read through it all, but let me just articulate real quickly what the king, he says the king's going to do. The king is going to take your sons and use them for his wars. He's going to take them and use them for harvesting his land, not their land. He will take their daughters to serve them. He will take their land and use it as collateral to increase his power and to win friends. He will take their harvest to pay for his servants. He will take their servants to be used as his servants instead. He will take their flocks. And lastly, there's this little line at the end. He says, ultimately, he's going to treat you like a slave. Now, if you're an Israelite, there should be something ringing in your ears at this point. What are you reminded of if you're an Israelite and you hear the word slave? In other words, what what God is telling them through the mouth of Samuel is this. And if you go to this king, if you demand a king, then you are returning yourself to Egypt without ever going back. You're simply bringing an evil Pharaoh upon yourselves. And what I'm communicating to you here is God is giving them a warning. And he's warning us. And this is the warning to you. Understand, the things of this world that you look to as your king to give you rule and power and protection and justice and an identity, then those things will rule over you and they will enslave you. If marriage, if marriage, if you ought to be married to be happy, and to be joyful in this life, ultimately marriage will enslave you. If you're not married, you'll be never be happy. It'll have a control over your joy in life. If you are married and you've come to the realization that, oh my goodness, my spouse is not a very good God, you're going to be constantly frustrated. If your happiness is joy is based on their, their, the way they treat you as a spouse, then you're constantly going to be in flux, enslaved to how they treat you. If you have success as your king and look to that to fulfill you, then you'll probably overwork. You'll probably be constantly jealous of other people who are more successful than you. You'll be resentful of those who get opportunities around you. Sometimes you might even be devastated when you don't get credit for something you know the credit was due to you. You know, sometimes I heard someone say this, and I thought it was apropos, which is so to describing type A people that we often talk about type A people as people who are driven by success. Because, but that's actually not what. A better way to say it is: Type A people are driven because they're enslaved by success. Right? Twenty-hour days—only slaves work twenty-hour days. We drive ourselves. Those of us who love work and desire to be successful—and this is me—would be. We do it to the to the deficit of our families and our health, everything, because we can't imagine a world in which we aren't successful. Because that's our king. You have more money, money is your king, then you will become its slave. If you have none, you'll probably go into credit card debt and it'll rule your life and destroy you and put your stomach in knots because you can never pay your creditors. On the other side of things, if you have plenty of money, but there's many of you that have millions of dollars in the bank and yet you're afraid, constantly anxiety stricken and stressed out because you're afraid you're going to run out. It owns you. It owns you. What kind of king? We need a king. That's the whole point we see in large part of the early part of the Bible. We need a king. But what kind of king should they have asked for? <clears throat> Excuse me. A king who would have been in line of Deuteronomy 17. Just rem- let me just rewind you real quick the type of king they should have asked for. They should have gone to God and said, God, we want a king who will be of your choosing. We want a king who will be a, a man amongst Israelites. We want a king who will not acquire horses and wives and riches and make much of himself. We want a king who will know the law and keep the law and keep the law and-, and push the law into our country with justice. We want a king so wondrous that his character actually changes our holiness and makes us into a holy nation. That's the kind of king we should have asked for. In other words, who should they have asked to be their king? God. Because no man can fulfill the requirements of Deuteronomy chapter 17. No mere man. In fact, their history would tell them this. They would say, we have looked at man after man and judge after judge to come in and rule us, and they have all failed us. And therefore, actually, quite specifically, here's what they should ask for. That God, we don't know how you're going to do it. But we need a king, and we need to see him, and he needs to be present in our lives. And so, God, we don't know how you're going to do it, but you need to come down here. And God shows us that that's exactly the king that we need, because that's what he gives us, isn't it? A king who will fulfill the role of Deuteronomy chapter 17, and yet will become present with us, who will enter into this world. King Jesus, that is who he is. He is God in the flesh. He is the king to enter into our world. He is the king who comes down That's who Jesus is. King Jesus is radically different than all the kings of this world and the kings of this world offers. You see, every other king says this, if you obey me, I will will give you things. I will protect you. I will give you power. I'll give you joy. I'll give you happiness, whatever that king is. But all the kings of this world would say this, if you disappoint me, if you fail to find the one, if you fail to make enough money, if you fail to have power and success, then your life is miserable and I'll make it a misery. But King Jesus, King Jesus comes in and invades. When we're a people, what were we doing when he invades? We're a people who are running away from him, scorning him. We work for the other kingdoms. And yet he comes in, he says this, and this is what Tim Keller says. Jesus is the only king that if you obtain him will satisfy you and whom if you fail him, when you fail him, instead of making your life miserable, he'll forgive you. That's the king we need. That's the king we need. You ask what kind of king they should have asked for. They should have asked for a king who is said of him, who being in the form of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but became what? A servant. A king who would lay aside his glory. That's the kind of king that describes in Deuteronomy 17, right? Not one who comes and tells everybody in his kingdom, you got to serve me. But one who first comes and says, I will be a servant to you. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He gets down with a basin and a towel and he washes his disciples' feet. And what does he say? I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Let me warn you, there are other kings out there, but there's a better king. There's a true and better king. We say about him, David's son, this morning. That leads us to some options, and this is heading four. And this is the tragic outcome of Israel. And the call of this text, Ed described it as dark. Maybe it's a dark sermon, it's foreboding, it's critical. But we see it here, it's asking a question, a tragic outcome is what we see at the end. How the people respond. Samuel gives them this dark warning: this is what life is going to be like under a king, you'll be enslaved. Don't do this. But the people refuse to listen. And actually, if you understand the Hebrew, it's actually quite, it's one of the funniest lines in all the Old Testament. What they say is they say, no, we will have a king. This is like with me talking to my, my youngest daughter and she's in the no phase right now. And I say, no, chapel, you will not have that cookie. And she looks at me and she says, no, I will have a cookie. <laughs> That's the petulance, the bratishness of the people of Israel in this moment. They're saying, we will have what we want and you will not stand in our way. And so God says, what's God's response? Okay, you want a cookie? Have a cookie. I'll see how you enjoy dinner. See, God is not, he gives him a king, and that's odd. We ask, what, if, if it's gonna be so bad, why would he give him a king? Is God in just kind of a bad place here? He kind of makes a rock in a hard place as their God, and he goes, ugh, they're gonna leave me if I don't give them a king. Is that, is that how it is? Oh, okay, I'll give you a king. Is he just being kind of really gracious and sweet? It's kind of like when your kid asks for a piece of chocolate before dinner, and you're just kind of like, okay, okay, here's a cookie. Is that what he's doing? Is he being sweet to them, acquiescent to them? No, God's judging them in this moment. He's judging them by giving them exactly what they ask for with all of its consequences. That's what God is doing here. One of the most frightening statements and one of the terrifying moments of the life is when God gives us exactly what we want. How have you had this experience? <laughs> You dated somebody in college. And in college, they were the center of your world. And you're like, man, this person's awesome. Jesus, just let me marry her. Wouldn't it be awesome if we got together? And in God's providence, he took that relationship away. And you see that person, that old girlfriend on Facebook, and you go, oh, praise Jesus. He did not give me what I want because she is crazy. I got two of those. Listen, one of God's most gracious things he can ever give to you, I'll tell you about that later if you want to know. Uh, <laughs> you're like, oh, really? Uh, one of the most gracious things God can do for you is not say yes to your prayers when, he asks for you, when you ask him for your idols. And one of the worst things God can do for you is to give you your idols. And to give you the most frightening verse, maybe in all of Scripture is Romans chapter 1, verse 26, where it says this, and talking about the evilness of man and the depravity of man and how they've rejected God. And ultimately the final statement is this: and God gave them over to their desires. God gave them over to the desires. Listen, have you ever got something that you wanted so bad, but when you got it, you realized it was a curse to get it? See, God sometimes will give you what you want to remind you, and it comes with all It's you know, you're like, oh, I got everything that I wanted, and it's still not satisfying, and my life is empty, and he gives you that, so that ultimately you can realize, oh, my, the one I really need is God himself. Man, this is, you actually hear this, this is such a, like a, you hear the, especially athletes talk about this, this is such an FCA illustration, so maybe kind of a trope, but right? The athlete who gets up and says, I had this success and this success and this success. I had everything I wanted, and it wasn't satisfying. That's God's curse. If he loves you, it's God's discipline to bring you back. And this is the challenge for us, because the people of Israel say, we will not listen to the warnings. And so they say, God, give us what we want. And God says, here you go. Have it. And it goes terribly bad for them. Now, it actually reflects, Israel will do the same thing a thousand years later. Luke chapter 23, and this is the challenge for us that I'm going to put before you. Luke chapter 23 is a conclusion. Verse 13, I don't have it on the screen, so if you have your Bible, look over there. And here's what it says. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, Jesus is standing trial before him. And he said, you brought me, this man Jesus, as one who was misleading the people. I'm going to notice all the parallels. Misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of your charges. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. In other words, do you hear... like Samuel, he's saying, you're saying God isn't leading you well. God's not giving you the victory, and he's going, wait a second. Everything in your history, Israel, is saying God has been leading you just fine. It's when you reject him that things go badly. But here's what in verse 18, but they all cried out. Here was their response. They all cried out, away with this man and release us from Barabbas. And that's what so many of us are shouting at God. I don't want King Jesus. I want Barabbas to be my king. I want a murderer to be my king. But, and a man who had been thrown into prison for the insurrection and started in the city and for murder. In verse 20, Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And a third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish him and release him. But they were urgent and they demanded with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. You should be hearing the echoes of first Samuel chapter eight. We will have the king that we want, and we will not have this king. We will not have the king that God has chosen for us. In John chapter nineteen, verse fifteen, it is stated even more boldly and clearly. They say this in their shouts they say, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And then Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. It's a happy sermon. But it is a challenging sermon. First, first Samuel chapter 8 is coming to the people and saying, you need a king. But you've rejected the king that you need. The king who will give you life. The king who will rule over you. The king who will serve you. And so the question for us this morning, I got two applications for you real brief to bring us to a close. First is this, do not reject warnings. And I am I very specifically trying to sound like Proverbs here, kiddos you're a kid here go read proverbs proverbs chapter 12 verse 15 it says this the fool is right in his own eyes what's the problem at the end of judges everyone did what was right in his own eyes but a wise man listens to advice. The measure of wisdom is being willing to listen and submit to the warning of other brothers who have gone before you and have experienced the dissatisfaction that this world and these kings have to offer and instead say, I will not chase after money. I will not chase after pleasure. I will not chase after fame and success and overwork. I will chase after the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Listen, go find somebody with some white hair in here and you ask them. You ask him if it's worth it. You ask him if it was worth it to spend their 20s and their 30s chasing after those things, and what actually satisfies the desires of their hearts? Would you listen while you're young? Listen to the warnings Israel failed to listen. Take wisdom. The second, here's your options. Let me state it very clearly. The people in John chapter 19 stated very boldly and very clearly for us. You have two options. You can serve Caesar with all the consequences that it comes with, all the warnings of 1 Samuel chapter 8, or you can bow at the feet of King Jesus. Those are your options. And so if, you, if you're wondering where we are in this moment, this is the time where we call you what we call repentance and belief. That you would turn from the kings of this world and you would turn to the rightful king. You'd say, I will not serve Caesar and the kings of this world. I will not look to man to satisfy my needs. I will look to King Jesus to satisfy my needs. The one who will bring me justice and power and care and victory ultimately. And here's what it would sound like maybe if you were to pray it right now. A prayer of repentance. This is called a Presbyterian altar call. Just so you're you're following along. Right? When you rededicate yourself. Because every day you're supposed to repent of your sins. What it would look like is for you to get on your knees today and say, God, and you name the king. You say, I have served this king. I have played music at his feet. I have given my life to this king, and I confess that, and I want to say, you're better. I want you more than these things. That's repentance. And then you then cling, and you say, Jesus is better. And you say, I want to look to the king, the one who came and said to me, I will serve you. I will give my life as a ransom for you. I I won't take your sons. I will give my son for you. You get on your knees and say, you're the better king. You're the king that I need. Would you do that this morning? Let's pray. Gracious God, revival happens when people are willing to repent. When the church of Jesus Christ stops looking to um, their bank accounts to make them feel good. When the church of Jesus Christ stops trying to be comfortable. When the church of Jesus Christ stops trying to live like the world's. And decides to seek to become holy, to follow the king and the trust. And so, Spirit of the living God, what I pray for right now, that you would, um, for so many here, they've heard this whole idea, like, okay, an idol. I've got, you know, a king who rules my life. So, Spirit of the living God, I pray that, like Samuel, that you would come and you would warn That you would reveal to us in this room what it would look like if the king that currently is ruling our lives, if he has his way for the next 5 and 10 and 15 years, what will our life look like then? And use it as a means of convicting us and bringing us back to the true and better king. The king that we desperately need. The king who would be like the one in Deuteronomy 17. So gracious God, we come and we repent before you and we cry out to you and we say what we want, what we need, who we need to win our victories is Jesus. Would you come and reign victorious over us? Win the victory for us, Jesus. We pray in his name, amen.